morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are just beginning a study of the fourth gospel, which is commonly called John. That's what it's titled in your Bible. This gospel, I think, is the best gospel track you'll ever find. You know, and I think many people have used this evangelistically, handed out and told people to read the book of John more than any other book. Uh, it's a great thing to give to people who are looking, you know, interested in Christianity. They're evaluated. Where do I read? Where do I start? Well, the Gospel of John is a great place to start. Often recommended by many people to new Christians to study. And there's a reason for that. And we'll talk about that in a minute here. Now, in our last study, we talked about authorship. Who wrote this gospel? The text tells us that it was written by the disciple who Yeshua loved. It says, Peter turning around saw the disciple who Yeshua loved following them and one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper. So here the writer mentions the disciple whom Yeshua loved and then he states that this is the disciple who wrote the letter. He says in verse 24, this is the disciple who's testifying these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. All right? Now, the antecedent of this here is disciple who Yeshua loved in verse 20. So we know who wrote the gospel. There shouldn't be any question as far as that goes. It was the disciple who Yeshua loved. Now, the question is, who is that? And that's where the argument comes in. Well, it's my opinion that the apostle John is not the disciple who Yeshua loved, but it is, in fact, Lazarus. Now, I think that's clear from the gospel itself. Now, we saw in our study last time that Lazarus is the only man named in the Bible specifically identified as being loved by Yeshua. The only one who is... So, when we read the disciple Yeshua loved, I think we should be able to make that connection. Lazarus is the Greek rendering of the name Eleazar. And Eleazar is a name found only in priestly lineages. I believe that John Eliezer, or Lazarus, was a priest. Polycrates, who was an early bishop of Ephesus, claimed that the beloved disciple was a prominent priest. And the reference for that is in the notes, if you want to look that up. The Apostle John wasn't a prominent priest, so this certainly doesn't fit him if that's true, and I think it is true. It does fit Eliezer or Lazarus. Now, As I said earlier, the fourth gospel is commonly called John, and I really don't have a problem with that, as long as we understand that it's not John the Apostle or John the Elder, it is John Eleazar, or Lazarus. Now, as I'm sure you realize, this view has its opponents, as does any view, okay? Ed Stevens, in a paper titled, Lazarus, Not the Author of the Fourth Gospel, in response to my teaching that he is, Quotes this, he says, The idea of Lazarus writing a gospel account raises all kinds of questions about the inspiration and canonical authority of the fourth gospel if it was written by Lazarus. My response is, why? Why? What kind of questions does that raise? Are all the New Testament books written by apostles? Was Mark an apostle? Uh, No. Was Luke an apostle? No. How about James and Jude? Didn't they write books? Were they apostles? No, they weren't. How about the author of Hebrews? I think it was Barnabas. Now, if you think it was Paul, then I guess he was an apostle. But Barnabas, I mean, he wasn't an apostle. So I don't see a problem with Lazarus writing this gospel. Here's the bottom line, people. Yahweh is the ultimate authority behind the scripture, as is he's behind the author of John. This is what we have to keep in mind as we're reading the word of God. And whoever wrote John wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether it was John the Apostle, John the Elder, John Lazarus, because the bottom line is, it is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God comes directly from the mind of God. And that is what Timothy, we write, see in 2 Timothy, says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, Reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So whoever the human author was, this is the word from the living God, Yahweh. Look again at verse 24. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. 
What we see in the Gospel of John is a beautiful portrait of Yeshua written by an eyewitness account. He was there. He experienced Yeshua's teachings. He experienced the miracles firsthand and He gives us an eyewitness account of what happened there. Now, most scholars believe that John's Gospel was the last one written. They think Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote before them. Origen, expressing this view, writes, As to the four Gospels, which alone are indisputable in the church of God under heaven, I learned from tradition that the first to have been written was that of Matthew, who was formerly a tax collector, but later an apostle of Jesus Christ. It was prepared for those who were converted from Judaism to the faith and was written in the Hebrew letters. Take note of that. He's saying Matthew was written in Hebrew. The second was that of Mark, who composed it under Peter's guidance. The third, the gospel, which was praised by Paul, was that of Luke, written for the Gentile converts. Last of all, there is that of John. So they believe that John was the last one to write the gospel. Now we have some evidence of a belief in the third century that John was aware of the other gospels when he wrote his. Clement of Alexander is quoted as saying, John, conscious that the outward facts had been set forth in the Gospels, was urged by his disciples and divinely moved by the Spirit composed a spiritual Gospel. Alright, now it's my opinion that John had read the first three Gospels before he wrote his. And having read that, he takes a very different approach. 93% of the Gospel of John is original material. Not found anywhere else. Alright? And John says he's an eyewitness to that. No, we know Matthew was an eyewitness. And we know Peter was an eyewitness. And he was the one who gave the information to Mark, who wrote the Gospel. So these guys are all eyewitnesses, right? They're, they're part of the life of Yeshua. They're walking with Him. They're talking with Him. They're seeing all this. So how could John sit down and write an account that's so different from the others, unless he read the others? I think he had to have been familiar with them. If he wouldn't have, if he just wrote an account, a lot of the stuff would have been the same. Because he's telling the same thing. He's telling the same story. He says, there are many other things which Yeshua did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose, that even the world itself would not contain the books. So John is obviously being selective here. He's saying, there's so many things, if I wrote them all, you know, there'd be so much material, you wouldn't be able to write, read it all, alright? So he was selective. He chose some things to write about, and he chose other things to leave out. Now, have you ever asked yourself why four Gospels? You know, when I first became a Christian, the first thing I did was start reading my Bible. I didn't, no one told me that. I don't know why. I just, I guess I was curious. What's in there? Now that I think I believe, what's in there? So I went home to my bedroom, and on my shelf was a Bible. On top of that Bible was a little wooden block with a communion cup in it from First Communion that I took at the Presbyterian Church. It was a little memorial thing. And so I got the Bible down, took the block off, and there was just dust all over. You could see a little square where the dust was. I remember it so well. I dusted that thing off, and I got down on my knees on my bed, and I asked the Lord to teach me. And I started with Matthew. I just, I don't know why, but that's where I started. And boy, that's a tough place to start. I got all these, I was reading to King James, begat so-and-so, begat, begat, begat. And I'm like, what is this? You know, once I got going, I said, oh, this is kind of interesting. I get to Mark, and I'm like, seems like I read that before. I get to Luke, and I'm like, wait a minute. It seems like I read that before. I'm like, what in the world? Why are these guys all saying the same thing? And you think, why not one composite? Why don't they get together and just write one? Well, the, the thing we have to understand, there's four different viewpoints. Four different viewpoints of Christ. Each of the Gospels has their own distinctiveness. Matthew presents the Lord Yeshua the Christ as King. Notice the very first verse. The record of the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, son of David here is put before son of Abraham. And that suggests his presentation of the Lord Yeshua is is a presentation of him as King. Matthew's genealogy is a legal genealogy. It's a royal genealogy. It describes our Lord's right to the Davidic throne. And Matthew's message to Israel and to the world is this, Behold your king. Now, something you may not be aware of, in the iconography of the early church, these four Gospels are frequently represented as symbols. Anybody familiar with that? The symbology of these Gospels? 
For example, the emblem that was used to represent the Gospel of Matthew was a lion. And the reason that the lion was chosen was because Christ is presented as king. And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents our Lord as the servant. The servant of Yahweh. He says for in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now the emblem that was commonly used for Mark was that of a man. And so in this Gospel, the early church regarded our Lord Yeshua as presented as the servant of God as a man. Now, when you're reading Mark, you find out Mark doesn't have a genealogy. Why? Who cares about a servant's genealogy? It's not something you care about, right? He's a servant. Servant doesn't need a genealogy. You don't have to be any kind of special bloodlines. And Mark's message to the world is, Behold, your servant. Luke, the third gospel, presents the Lord as a man. But in the early church, the emblem was most commonly used for Luke was the ox. The ox was used because the ox was an animal of service and of sacrifice. Now, Luke has a genealogy. Why? Because it's important for our Lord as a man to have a genealogy. It's not only necessary that the Messiah be the Son of God to be our Redeemer, He must also be one of us. He must be a man. And so in the genealogy of the Gospel of Luke, our Lord's ancestry is traced back to Adam. Not to David and Abraham like Matthew does, but all the way back to Adam to show that He is one of us on the human side. He is a man. Luke wants us to behold the man that is the humanity of Christ. So we get these different pictures of Christ as we go through these Gospels. In the Gospel of John, the Lord Yeshua is presented as Yahweh. Mark mentions this also. As a matter of fact, the term Son of God occurs more frequently in Mark than it does in John. But there's a mixture of the presentation of these ideas in the Gospel. But preeminently, John is the Gospel that presents our Lord in His divine nature. He is presenting Him as Yahweh. Now, there's no genealogy in the Gospel of John. Why is that? God doesn't have a genealogy. Okay, so there's no need for a genealogy. He's eternal. Anyone know what John's emblem was? The eagle was the emblem of the Gospel of John. And so John's message is, behold your God. And we'll see that, people. It is so clear through this book. Now, let me ask them, where do you think these images that the early church used of the Gospels came from? I mean, how did they come up with a lion and a man and an ox and an eagle? They just picked these out of the thin air, you think, or what? Huh? The stars? No, that's a good that's a good guess, but something a little more concrete, huh? Let's go to let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel one four and five. This is the vision that he sees in the first chapter of Ezekiel. And I looked, behold, the storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with the flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and it in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. With it there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had a human form. And then he goes into verse 10 and he describes these celestial beings. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion. And on the right of the face of the bull. And on the left, all four had the face of an eagle. So there you go. There you got the four images that the New Testament church used for these gospels. You got a man, you got a lion, you got a bull, and you got an eagle. Now, something else that I find very interesting is that in the Tanakh, there's a figure of the Messiah that is frequently used. It's called the branch. You familiar with that terminology? Over and over, we see that. Um, It's interesting that this term, the branch, is found in several places in the Tanakh. And those places, there's a fourfold picture that's presented, the picture that we see in the Gospels. Let's look at those briefly. And uh, Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So here we have a branch, a righteous branch that reigns as king. This is how Matthew presents Yeshua, the royal king. And here the righteous branch is a king. Uh, Zechariah 3.8 Now listen, Joshua the high priest 
You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. So here we have the branch as a servant, and this is how Mark portrays him as the servant. In Zechariah 6.12, Then say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. So here we have a man who is a branch, and that's how Luke presents him. And then finally in Isaiah 4.2, In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. So here the branch of Yahweh, which suggests a divine origin. So John's emphasis is on the deity of Christ. Now compared to the synoptics, which present Yeshua as a historical figure, John does too, but he also stresses the deity. Now obviously the synoptics present Yeshua as divine also, but the emphasis in the fourth gospel is strong on the deity of Christ. The emphasis runs from the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. To Thomas's confession, my God. You know, when Thomas said that, Yeshua didn't say, oh, no, no, Thomas, you got it, you got it all wrong. I'm, I'm not God. No, he didn't say anything because he is God. So it runs through this whole thing. Now, here's, I found this interesting, interesting. Mears says that every chapter in John's Gospel we see Jesus deity, she says. Now, let me read to you what she has written, because I think it's kind of interesting. She goes through each chapter. She says, in Nathaniel's confession, you are the Son of God, John 1, 49. We see his deity. In the miracle of Cana, thus revealed his glory, John 2, 11. In his word to Nicodemus, he said, he is the only Son, John three sixteen. In his conversation with the woman at Samaria, he stated, I who speak to you... Am he, the Messiah, John 4, 26. To the impotent man, he disclosed the voice of the Son of God will call the dead to life in John 5, 25. In the bread chapter, he admits, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. In the water of life chapter, he proclaims, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, John 7, 37. To the unbelieving Jews, he declared, before Abraham was born, I am. The blind man was told, you have now seen the Son of Man. In fact, He is the one speaking to you. Yeshua's unique claim to being the Son of God is seen in John 9.37. Yeshua stated, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. Martha's declaration in chapter 11, You are the Christ, the Son of God. To the Greeks He said, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. John 12.32 At the Last Supper He said, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, John 13, 13. In his statement, trust in God, trust also in me, John 14, 1. Liking us to branches on a vine, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. In promising the Holy Spirit, he said, I send him to you, John 16, 7. In his prayer of chapter 17, he says, glorify your son. In his trial, he states, you are right in saying, I am a king, John 18, 37. In his atonement, he had the right to say, it is finished, John 19.30. In his confession, Thomas the doubter exclaimed, My Lord and my God, John 20.28. 20, in demanding obedience, he says in John 21.22, You must follow me. Belief in Yeshua's deity, people, is a core doctrine of Christian theology. He's either God or he's a liar. Because he claimed to be God. And the early church called John the theologian. And the reason for that is this gospel, we have a preeminent interpretation of the significance of the life and ministry of the Lord Yeshua. Very deep, theologically, as we get into John. We also see Yeshua's deity in his miracles. John calls them signs. And John picks out seven signs or miracles to talk about, up to the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 12. So he's basically laying out these seven miracles. And I think you're aware the number seven is very significant to the Jews. There is a sacredness in the number seven. It pictures completeness, totality. So he's giving us seven signs. These signs were chosen in a particular reason. They point to the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. We also see his deity in the seven I am statements. So he's, John lays out seven miracles, and then he lays out seven I am statements. 
Let's look at one of them in John 8, 58. Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Does that ring a bell to anybody when you hear those I am statements? A literal translation here would read, Before Abraham was brought into being, I exist. (laughs) That statement, therefore, is not that Christ came into existence before Abraham did, but that he already existed before Abraham was brought into being. In other words, Christ existed before creation or eternally. In that sense, the Jews plainly understood him and they wanted to kill him. They knew what he was saying. Yeshua, in claiming to be I am, was asserting equality with God. Look at Exodus 3.14. I think you're familiar with this. In the verses before this, Moses said, Hey, who shall I say sent me? What, what am I going to tell them? You know, when they ask, who are you? What's your name? And so it says, God said, Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, send me to you. Now, I am who I am is Eheah Asher Eheah in Hebrew, and it means I am that one that exists. The root of Eheah is Haya, which means to be or exist. So Elohim tells Moses his name here, and he says, it's Ehiah. But look at the next verse. He says, Elohim further said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So Elohim again gives his name to Moses, but this time he says, it's Yahweh. Now the two names, Yahweh and Ehiah, are related. Ehiah means I exist, or could mean I will exist or I am. Yahweh means he exists, he will exist, or he is. And both these names are related to each other. They are both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the self-existent one. And in John's Gospel, seven times, Yeshua says, I am. People, that is so clearly demonstrating His deity. He is telling people, I am Yahweh in human flesh. Now, why did John write this gospel? You know, whenever you study a book, you want to try to understand the purpose for writing it. You know, what's the author's purpose? What's he trying to say? What's he trying to accomplish? And in some books, it's kind of difficult. In John, it's not. Because John tells us exactly why he wrote this book. John 20 30 and 31, he says, Therefore many other signs Yeshua also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Now watch, so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, notice first that John uses the word signs here instead of miracles. And I think he calls them signs because they point to Yeshua as God. As verse 30 says, many other signs Yeshua also performed. But John is led to select only seven. Now, some people say eight if you include the miracle of the catch of fish in John 21. But up to the raising of Lazarus, we have seven signs. And those don't even count the greatest sign of all, which was the resurrection of Christ. So John clearly states his twofold purpose for writing. He says, these have been written so that... You may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing, you may have life through His name. Two purposes. Do you believe in Yeshua? You believe who He is, He's the Son of God, and by believing, you'll have life. Stephen Cole writes this, John wants you to believe specifically that Jesus the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Anointed One who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which means He is God in human flesh. The pinnacle of faith in John's Gospel is when Thomas sees the risen Jesus and proclaims, My Lord and my God. I think that's right on. He, he He so clearly wants the purpose of this writing is so you will believe. Now, there's a number of key words in John's Gospel. But I think the most important word is pistuo, or believe. John uses the verb believe. He never uses the noun. But he used the verb believe 98 times, which is more than all the synoptic gospels put together. Do you know what it means to believe? 
Well, that should be simple, I think. But many people have complicated that today. All right? Many people. I think you know what it means to believe if you understand what it means to believe a promise. If I tell you something, I, I owe you money and I tell you I put the check in the mail. You don't have the check. You have no evidence. But if you believe, if you have believed, trust my character, then you would believe what I said. And you would say, okay, I have faith that the check's in the mail. The check is coming to me. And to, that's what it means to believe. It's to trust. We don't trust the church. We don't trust our good works. We don't trust any ordinances. We don't trust our experiences. We trust what Christ has done objectively. And I think it's pretty simple. You know, you know if you believe something or if you don't believe something. It, you know, you either do or you don't. I mean, some people could tell you the checks in the mail and you would go, yeah, right. Because you don't believe them because their character is no good. And you know, you know, they're not very truthful. Other people you would say, okay, that's as good to me as if I have the check because I trust them. I believe them. Some people really mess up the whole idea of faith or believing. They make it so complicated. They make it so difficult that nobody knows what they believe. And one such person is my lordship buddy, John Piper. All right? John Piper writes this, writing on John. He says, but writing on the purpose, the reason John's purpose statement for writing, you know, that you may believe. He says, don't get it in your head that this book is therefore only for unbelievers. You know, just because he said he's wrote for you to believe. It's not just for unbelievers. He says, believers on Jesus must go on believing in Jesus in order to be saved in the end. Yeah, you have a problem with that? What does that tell you? What Piper says there. He says, you're not saved until the end. Now, he doesn't say what end. The end of the world, the end of your life. I'm not sure. But look what he's saying here. He's saying believers must go on believing in order to be saved. In other words, you're not saved. You're a believer, but you're not saved because you have to go on to be saved in the future. So what are you saying here? Listen, he's saying believers aren't saved. And this is not isolated in Piper, okay? He does this over and over and over. He, he's so strong on the continuance of faith. You gotta be saved right up to, you gotta be faithful right up to the very end. What does this do to the gospel? Yeshua said, if you believe, you will have eternal life. Someday. No, he didn't say anything about someday. You receive it when you believe. But according to Piper, it's a lifelong process. Piper goes on and he writes this. So when John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, he meant that he was writing to awaken faith in unbelievers. So far, I'm okay with that, alright? He's, he's telling unbelievers, here's what you got to do. Now watch. And to sustain faith in believers, and in that way to lead both to eternal life. So John is writing to lead believers to eternal life. He's leading them to it. They don't have it, but he's leading them in that direction. People, this is extremely dangerous stuff. It destroys any kind of assurance you may have. It makes you look at your life to get your assurance from the things you're doing instead of for trusting in what Yeshua has done for you. There's just so many things wrong with this. But listen, this is where the majority of reform writers come from. Lordship. You've got to do this, this, that, or you're not a Christian. So contrary to what the Scriptures teach. And we'll see this as we go through the Gospel of John. There's not any things attached to this. It's believing in who He is and what He has done for us. All right. Let me get off that hobby horse and move on here. Now notice, well, I'm not quite off it yet. Let me, let me beat this horse a little bit more here. <laughs> notice how John says, these have been written. Alright? He's talking about the signs that he did. The signs were written. There's enough in these seven signs to bring you to faith. So that you will believe. Now think with me on this. Would you agree that John wrote this gospel specifically to bring people to eternal life? You think that's his purpose? Would you agree with that's his purpose here? Yet here's what's interesting. In this gospel, 
that John wrote to bring people to eternal life, he never once mentions repentance. The word repent, repentance is not used in this gospel. Now, many people like Piper and other Lordship writers say repentance is necessary for salvation. If that is true, John messed up. John wrote a a gospel on how to be saved and he forgot an element of how to be saved. I mean, that's crazy. How do you write to tell people what he's saved and you miss something that has to be done? He didn't mention it because it's not necessary. What is necessary is faith. All right, let's move on here. So John wrote that we may believe and by believing and believing alone, we may have eternal life. Now, that's the purpose of John. Now, I think John also had some side issues he's dealing with here. And I think one of them was probably dealing with the Docetics. They didn't come full-blown until later, but we see the early teaching of the Docetics early on. The Docetics held that Christ never became incarnate. He just seemed to be. And the Greek word dokion means to seem, and that's, the, that's where the name of the heresy came from. The Docetics believed that Yeshua only seemed to be human. Morris writes, He says, the docetic heresy did not appear in the first century seems clear. But certain elements that later were to be embodied in the heresy seem to have been quite early. So we see this idea of this early on. And I think John might have had that in mind. He's writing that we could understand that Yeshua is Yahweh in flesh. And we'll get into that as a lot of other things as we go through this. Now, one problem one of many, which Bible scholars deal with in relationship to John, is the synoptic Gospels. You know, the first three Gospels, they're called synoptics because they see things the same way. Their outline, their perspective is the same. And the difference between John and the synoptics is really noteworthy. And I'm sure you got that as you were reading through your very first time and you come to John. In John, much of Yeshua's ministry takes place in Jerusalem and Judea. I wonder why that is. Well, if it's written by a priest, that's where the priest would be, and that would make sense. But in the synoptics, Yeshua's ministry is more likely described in Galilee until the final trip to Jerusalem. Now, as a result, the synoptics give no evidence that Yeshua's ministry lasted more than maybe nine months to a year. But as you look at John, you see it requires a ministry of at least two to three years. In the synoptics, Yeshua's favorite mode of teaching was the parable. Mark 4.33 says, With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. So he used parables. He didn't speak to them without a parables. But what's interesting, Gospel of John, no parables. None. And parables aren't the only thing missing from John, okay? John mentions no genealogy, no birth, No baptism. No temptation. There's no demons cast out in John. There's no mention of the transfiguration. There's no mention of the institution of the Lord's Supper. No agony in Gethsemane. No ascension. No appointing of disciples. No great commission. There's no prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Why do you think there's no prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem? No, I think John wrote a prophecy of the destruction. It's called Revelation. He wrote a whole book on it, so he didn't have to put it in his gospel like the others did. All right? Well, there's not only things missing from John that other writers, you know, add. There are things that only are in John that we don't see anywhere else. Stephen Cole writes this. He says, some of the features that are unique to John include his direct assertion that Yeshua is the eternal God who created all things. That's true. He wants us to understand that. He alone says that Yeshua is the only begotten Son of God. John tells us of the first miracle of turning water into wine. You're only going to find that in John. He alone includes the interview with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. He tells of Yeshua's healing of the nobleman's son, John chapter 4. The lame man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. The man born blind, chapter 9. John alone records Yeshua's raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11. John tells us of Yeshua's washing the disciples' feet and the teaching in the upper room. 
where he gives the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. John records the longest prayer of Yeshua in John 17. He tells of Thomas's doubts, John 20, and the disciples' encounter with the risen Lord on the beach of Galilee, John 21. John carefully chooses all these events and much more to give us this selective insider's portrait of the Son of God. So he pulls out things nobody else mentions. He leaves out so many things that the others mention. So there's many differences between the synoptics and John, but there are some similarities. All right, don't you think he's totally out there and he didn't mention anything anybody else did? All four of the Gospels are introduced Yeshua's ministry as a means of John, by means of John the Baptist. All four note the descent of the Spirit on Yeshua in the form of a dove and the heavenly witness of Yeshua's divine sonship. All four present Yeshua teaching and performing miracles. All four describe the feeding of the 5,000. All four Gospels devote approximately one-third of their pages to the time following the triumphal entry. There's no question that John and the Synoptics are describing the same Yeshua. They're just coming from very different perspectives. Now let's talk for a minute about the dating of the fourth gospel. Boy, this is everything about this fourth gospel is really controversial. They, there's so many arguments about who wrote it, about when it was written. Scholars ancient and modern do agree that the fourth gospel was the last to be written. All right? Most scholars believe on the basis of content that John selected his material to supplement the material of the synoptics. In other words, they, they most believe that, yeah, he had the others. And like I said, he, I think he had to have had them to be, write so differently. All right? Now, some Bible scholars of the 19th and the 20th century held that the fourth gospel was written sometime in the late 2nd century A.D. That position is gone now. Okay? Because... In 1935, in Egypt, they found some scrolls. They're called the John Ryan's, Ryland's Papias, and they contain portions of John 18. And the fragments from a copy of the fourth gospel were dated to about 120-130. So that, these guys, that blew them out of the water. That's the neat thing about archaeology. The more we find things, the more we say, oh, that, that's not true anymore. You know, we're learning new stuff when these things come about. So even the late daters today, you know, you got dividing, you got early date, late date for John, but the late daters today would hesitate to date the gospel much beyond 100 AD. Most scholars today date the gospel of John around 96 AD. That's, that's pretty normal. All right. Here's my question. What internal evidence do we have that tells us the date must be much earlier than 96? Anybody know? Okay, exactly. If this book was written in the 90s, there's a monumental event missing. The destruction of Jerusalem. He's a priest. He's Hebrew. How do you write a book and not talk about that? And listen, the temple receives more attention in John than any other New Testament book. And he says nothing about its destruction. Oh, he just forgot about that probably, right? That's not something a Hebrew could forget about, people. All right? So the early daters placed the composition of the fourth gospel before the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. And most of them were saying about 60 to 68 A.D. He wrote this. They point out there's no mention of the catastrophic event which began with the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire and ended with the brutal devastation of Jerusalem and the temple. I mean, how do you write and leave that out? You know, that was the end of the world for the Jews. Their world ended. So he's writing a gospel and leaves that out? There's other things, though. In the writing, John makes reference to a site in Jerusalem in the present tense that no longer stood after the temple was destroyed. In John 5, 2, he says, Now, this is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. There is, not there was, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. Now, this pool was rediscovered by archaeologists in the late 1800s. It had been buried in the debris since the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And you know what they found? They found that it had five porticos just as described in John. And they're just amazed. Like, wow, he knew what he was talking about. You know? D.B. Wallace, 
who argued that the present tense in 5.2 is not to be understood as a historical present, present, and thus provides a significant clue to the early dating of the gospel. In other words, when he wrote it, he said, this, this, this is there. Not it was, it used to be there, because it, it was there when he wrote it. Now, Constable writes, I got a kick out of this. He said, some who hold this date, speaking of the early date, Note the absence of any reference to Jerusalem's destruction in John. However, there could have been many reasons John chose not to mention the destruction of Jerusalem if he wrote after the event. Really? Who would they be? I mean, I just think that's ridiculous to to think that a Hebrew writing this book would leave out something. So the temple was everything to them. That was the presence of God to them. That was the holy ground and now it's all gone and he doesn't even mention it. W. Hall Harris III writes this, John makes no reference at all to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Thus it is assumed this must be far enough removed not to seem as important. I don't know how far you could get removed not to be important. He says, but of all the New Testament writings with the exception of Hebrews and Revelation, the fourth gospel is the most likely to contain an allusion to the fall of Jerusalem. The focus of the gospel is on the rejection of Messiah by his own. The visitation and rejection must mean divine judgment. So he says it'd be crazy for him not to write about that because, you know, that's what's important to him. Now, those who believe that John was written prior to AD 70 believe that all four Gospels were written between 55 and 70. Those who see John coming from this time frame point to certain very Jewish aspects of the Gospel. See, John uses the Jewish words rabbi, and Messiah far more than any of the other Gospels. John frequently seems to use the language of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scroll community that ceased to exist after AD 70. So he's using that. It has to be before, all right? Some scholars feel that the Jewish aspects of the Gospel fit better in the time prior to AD 70 than years following. And I think that's just, at least to us as preterists, I think that should be very clear. One more thing here before we close, all right? Remember, I'm saying Lazarus is a priest, right? He's a Jewish priest. He's Hebrew. I think as a Hebrew, he would have written the gospel in Hebrew, all right? Not Greek. Now, if you know anyone knows anything about Greek, if you take a Greek class, you always start with the gospel of John because it's the simplest Greek there is, all right? So people always start there. But I don't think it was written originally in Greek. I think it was in Hebrew. When you study this gospel, when you see John's vocabulary, when you see his sentence structure, his expression and his arrangement of thoughts, they're essentially Hebrew. Hebrew and Greek thinkers are so far apart, it's so easy to see this. Now, Westcott writes this, The source of the imagery of the narrative is the Old Testament. The words are Greek words, but the spirit which they live is Hebrew. Alrighty, so he's saying you see the Hebrew thought so clearly. In this thing. And the author's use of quotations from the Tanakh shows that he is not dependent on the Septuagint. A lot of New Testament writers quote from the Septuagint, but nowhere does a quotation from the Tanakh and John agree with the Septuagint against the Hebrew translation. So he always uses the Hebrew translation. Sometimes in the Greek, the Septuagint translation is different, and some New Testament writers do that. John doesn't. He always quotes from the Hebrew. Now, I've said in the past that it's my opinion that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew. All right? Let me modify that. Okay? (laughs) You ready for this? (laughs) I believe that the New Testament, the oral New Testament, was Hebrew. Its writers were Hebrew, the thought process was Hebrew, but there are times, I think, when its first written form may have been Greek. Now remember we saw that Origen said that Matthew was prepared for those who were converted from Judaism to the faith, and Origen said it was written in Hebrew letters. There's some New Testament books that are really clear have been written in Hebrew. I just think they all were, maybe not in their original written down form. Remember, Hebrew is a very oral culture. They didn't even trust writings. Writings were distrusted. We're, we're opposite of them now, okay? 
You know, if it's oral, we don't really trust it. It's got to be written down. With them, it was written. You know, some rabbis spoke against writing things down. They didn't trust it if you wrote it down. The oral tradition was so strong. So these things were passed on. And sometimes, maybe when they finally did get written down for the first time, maybe they were Greek. But, you know. Okay, you say, why is this important anyway? Who cares? Written in Greek? What's the difference? Well, we need to understand that interpretation is inherent part of translation. All right? A translator may attempt to translate a body of text literally, but even reading a text is a process of interpretation. When you read something in English, you have to interpret it. You have to say, well, okay, what is he saying? What does he mean when he uses this word and that word? And what is he trying to express? So we're interpreting as we're reading. Even reading one's own language or listening to someone speaking, you got this process where you're interpreting. So any translation carries some of the translator's beliefs in the text. If someone's translating, they're putting in what they think. That's just natural. We have our own biases. It's going to happen. I believe that our English Bible is a translation from Greek, which is a translation from Hebrew thought. All right, And we see this all through the Scriptures. So in order to really understand the text, we have to try to get back to the Hebrew, not the Greek mindset. We'll see that as we look at, you know, the very first verse is a lot of controversy. You know, the Logos is Greek. Well, the Greek concept of Logos is very drastically different than the Hebrew concept. All right? And we'll see that as we get it. But we have to understand, this is a Hebrew man writing this book. This is a Hebrew priest. And he's writing in Hebrew thought. He thinks Hebrew. None of these guys thought Greek. All right? So we get back to the Hebrew mindset. We'll get a better understanding of what they were actually saying. All right. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity again to look at your word. Lord, I pray that as we go through this gospel, as we begin it next week, that you would just, you would teach us, Lord. You would help us to see what's really there. Help us to dig down and find out what he is saying and why he is saying it. Lord, I pray that as we go through this word, it wouldn't just be an educational process, Lord, but it'd be an image of you. We'd see you in all your glory and we'd be transformed, Lord. We would be the people you've called us to be because we understand who you are. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the privilege we have to study it. Amen.